be seated. You can look in your copy of the Word of God this morning at John's Gospel, chapter 10, verses 22 through 30, or you can follow along inside of your bulletin as it is the third scripture lesson for this morning. Most often I take a passage of scripture and give an exposition on it, and I plan to do that this morning, but I do have a driving theme on this, what we celebrate All Saints Day in the Christian calendar. And that theme is the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. And I think we find a good description of the elements that make up the perseverance of the saints in the Gospel of John in these verses that we read this morning, verses 22 through 30. And actually what we'll find out is the perseverance of the saints is largely the perseverance of God. The perseverance of God. As he perseveres with all those who are his children to bring them safely home to him. I am indebted to Dr. Eric Alexander for his treatment of this passage. I think he has a marvelous structure and outline, which I intend to use this morning, as we look at two basic questions. Uh, number one, how do you recognize Christ's sheep? How do you recognize Christ's sheep? And we'll see that in verses 24 through 27. And then secondly, how can we be sure his sheep will never perish? How can we be sure and certain? that Christ's sheep will never perish. And so those are the two questions we'll be answering this morning. And let's ask the Lord to bless our time of study together now before we begin. Heavenly Father, I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart might be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. O oh Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Father, we wish to see Jesus and Him only. We pray that you get all the glory, the triune God, that you get all the glory and honor for this effort. That, Lord, you would edify the saints, that we might grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as a result of the message. Do all these things and more. We'll give you the praise and glory and honor for what you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let me read to you, first of all, as I introduce this theme to you, something from the Canons of Dort. This is Article 8, the certainty of this preservation of the saints. It says, quote, So it is not by their own merits or strength, but by God's undeserved mercy, that they neither forfeit faith and grace totally, nor remain in their downfall to the end and are lost. With respect to themselves, this is not only easily could happen, but also undoubtedly would happen. But with respect to God, it cannot possibly happen. God's plan cannot be changed, and God's promise cannot fail. The calling according to God's purpose cannot be revoked. The merit of Christ, as well as his interceding and persevering, cannot be nullified. And the sealing of the Holy Spirit can neither be invalidated nor wiped out. 
great statement on the perseverance of the saints. And you see again that it is of God. That is the reason why we persevere. Now, I want you to notice the first point. How do you recognize Christ's chief? And I believe Jesus gives us four marks of this recognition. Number one, they have saving faith. They have saving faith. And you see this in verses 24 through 26. You'll know the religious leaders come to Jesus and they say, How long would you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And the Lord responds, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You see, the Lord Jesus is presenting saving faith from a negative vantage point. He's showing us what it is not so that by default we would understand what it is. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 14, section 2, gives a beautiful definition of this, of what is saving faith, the essence of it. It says, receiving and resting upon Christ alone. That is the essence of saving faith, receiving and resting upon Christ alone. But you don't see that in these particular verses. Jesus told them, I told you, and he did over and over again. He not only told them, but he showed them by his miracles and by his healing. From John chapter 1 all the way to this point in John 10, it's been made abundantly clear. But you'll notice how he says it in verse 26. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. I want you to mark that. He doesn't say you do not believe and therefore you are not of my sheep. No, there is a sovereign dimension here of Almighty God. You do not believe because you are not of my sheep. You see, believing is more than just giving assent to a series of statements about something. For instance, if I asked you, do you believe in modern medicine? I suppose 100% of us would say, absolutely, I am totally convinced of modern medicine. But the simple fact is that type of mental assent does not impact your life. When you're on your sickbed and your life is in the balance and someone asks you, are you willing to put your hands, put your life in the hands of Dr. So-and-so? And you say yes. That's something totally different than just simply believing in modern medicine. We believe a lot of things that don't make any difference in our lives. And this is beyond theoretical belief. It is personal. It is practical. You remember that the book of James, James, the younger half-brother of our Lord, says, you believe in God, you do well. The demons also believe and tremble. And so this intellectual assent only is no more than what demons practice. They're aware that Jesus is the Christ. They just don't believe in Him. They don't receive Him and rest upon Him. Saving faith is a gift from God, but God does not believe for you. And so He opens our hearts to believe. And we respond by believing. And 
we're not hardened like these individuals in this particular chapter. Saving faith is a mark of a child of God, of the sheep of Christ's pasture. Now notice the second mark quickly. Not only do they have saving faith, but they also listen to Jesus' voice. Look at the first part of verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. Those who receive and rest upon Jesus Christ alone hear what Jesus said. In fact, they listen to what he says. You know, hearing can be audible. We can hear certain things in our ears, but that doesn't make it efficacious. In other words, it doesn't impact our hearts. Perhaps you've said, and I've heard it said, when you're in a conversation with somebody, I hear what you're saying. But I disagree with it. No, Jesus' sheep respond to His voice. They respond to His word. That's why earlier in this chapter, in verse 3 of John 10, He says the sheep hear His voice, the great shepherd, and He calls His own sheep by name and leads them out. And even earlier than that, in John 8, Jesus said, whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you, the religious leaders, do not hear them is that you are not of God. Those who have saving faith don't simply hear the words of Jesus. The true sheep respond to the great shepherd of the sheep. The application is true sheep listen to and respond to the word of God. You know, Old Testament Israel gives us an accurate picture of the opposite of this. Listen to the words of Isaiah 42, verses 20 and 23. The Lord speaks of the Israelites. He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? In Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 10, Behold, the ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. That's what happens when you're not of his sheep. You hear Bible lessons or you read the Bible and it doesn't create inside of you a hunger, a thirst to read more, to listen more, to become convinced of what God is saying. And so you see in the church... The people of God can never be casual about what the Word says. I'm listening, Lord. I'm listening with all of my heart. I believe it is God who is speaking. Whenever we open His Word, whether it's in private devotions or we're studying in a Bible a class or in a sermon, that attitude of, Lord, I'm listening. Open my ears. Open my eyes. I want to know what you have to say. And the same is true collectively. The church of Jesus Christ wants to know, what does God say? You know, the world wants to know, what does fashion say? What is in vogue? But the church of Jesus Christ is not a democracy. It is a theocracy. Where God Almighty, through His Word, holds sway. And so we as Christians ought to ask, Lord, what does your word say in any and every situation? 
other examples of this in the Bible. You know, too often we, even as Christians, can get dull about listening to God's Word. We let other things come our way. I can't help but think of Mary and Martha in Luke 10. You know, we get busy often. And part of the problem, I think, of listening to God's Word, not merely hearing it, is that we're so busy and so consumed with so much in our lives and in our jam-packed schedules that we don't have the time to sit quietly and be still, as the psalmist says, and know that you're God. That was the situation with Mary and Martha in Luke 10. You remember the story. Mary was running all over the place and Jesus was coming and she was making preparations and getting more and more frustrated. She was frazzled. And finally she says, Lord, tell my sister Mary to help me. The Bible makes it clear Mary was quiet and seated at the feet of Jesus. And the Lord said to Martha, 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 you're bothered and worried about so many things. But only one thing is essential and necessary. Mary has chosen the good part, and it will not be taken away from her. You take time to be still and know that God is on the throne. If you run through life rattled, just shaking your hand and wondering what's going to happen next, whenever we do that, our view of God becomes very microscopic. We don't see Him as the God who is presented in Isaiah 42, as being in control of all things and one who won't share His glory with another. No, I think of John 6. You know, when Jesus lost all of that crowd in one of the longest chapters in this gospel as they went away, Jesus at the end in verse 67 said to his twelve, You do not want to go away too, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Who could forget this? Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. There is a sense in which we're listening to it. Not just audibly, but efficaciously. We're listening in the heart. I must move on quickly. They have saving faith, Mark number one. They listen to Jesus' voice, Mark number two. Number three, they enjoy a unique and intimate relationship with Him. Look at verse 27b. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. Don't just run over that little phrase. You know, there's a casual kind of knowledge, like a knowledge of a mutual friend. Do you know uh, this friend of mine? Do you know my sister or my brother? Do you know of the company I work for? Do you know of the particular discipline I'm studying? You can get to know almost anything through research. If I want to know something, I go to Google. And I go to YouTube. I could find, all, I could probably be a brain surgeon if I have to. You know, there's, there's probably a YouTube video showing you how to do it. There is everything else. That kind of knowledge we can get through research. But the knowing of Jesus, the knowing he's referring to, is not so much a matter of research, it's a matter of an intimate relationship. The Hebrew concept of knowing is more than theoretical. That's the way the Greeks operated. 
with knowledge and the strength of intellect. The Jew would say, you don't know something until you've made it a practice in your life. You don't truly know something until it impacts you at the deepest level. Even in the Bible, you can see evidence of this. The first recorded place of new is in Genesis 4.1. Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived and bore a son. In a beautiful way, the Bible puts language. It really elevates the sewer of language that we have in our own day. And Adam knew his wife at the deepest level, and she conceived and bore a son. That's the kind of knowledge the Lord Jesus is talking about. That I know you. I know you inside and out. I know your failures and successes. I know the things that bother you the most and the things you're most ashamed of. I know it all. And I love you. And I treasure you as my possession. In fact, if you look earlier in John 10, if you have your Bibles, verse 14 and 15a, Jesus himself says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, I know the Father. You see what he's doing? He's comparing his knowledge of us with Jesus' knowledge of the Father. You understand how deep and how rich that is? That we are in this dynamic, rich relationship where just as the Father knows the Son and the reverse, so also Jesus knows us and we know Him and we are in this intimate relationship of faith and trust. What a beautiful thing. And this is the way the Word is used in the Scriptures. The knowing is as intimate as the Father has with the Son. No wonder the Bible says, go on growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not simply knowing more of Scripture. It's knowing intimately the God of sacred Scripture. And that takes a lifetime. Well, they enjoy a unique relationship with the Lord. And then fourthly, they follow Jesus in obedience. Look at the latter part of verse 27 again. And they follow me. Jesus is referring to plain obedience. Plain obedience. You know, we have a dog that uh, my kids gave to Diane, uh, not to me. In spite, of, in spite of the fact that I told them repeatedly, no, don't do this. They went ahead and bought one anyway. And this dog is finely bred. You know how they breed sometimes with other dogs that are not that close to where uh, the original family came from? Well, you can breed a dog so much so that they become mad. They don't listen anymore. I don't think they're capable of listening. And while our dog is cuddly and nice and sweet and cute, often I can ask her to do something and she'll do the exact opposite of what I asked her to do. Come to me. Come. And she'll go the other direction. Christ's sheep are not like that. They obey Him. And of course, they're not perfect. They will strive to obey Him and keep His Word in all situations and circumstances. And when they fail, they'll get up, confess, and get back in the race. And that's why Paul refers to obedience from the heart in Romans 6.17. 
The winds and the waves obeyed the Lord Jesus. Unclean spirits obeyed Him. And 1 John 2, 3 says, And by this we know we have come to know Him if we keep His commandments. He challenges us to obedience. And you know, I think sometimes obedience is hard because we skip over a few things that we've already talked about. If I'm listening to the voice of Jesus and I'm seeking to enhance this intimate relationship that I have with Him, and then the words of Jesus will come true in my life. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. And when you give your life to me in an intimate relationship, and you're listening to me and you have saving faith, then you'll find that obedience to my commands is not burdensome. But my faith will sustain you. Well, quickly, that is, how do you recognize Christ's sheep? Very quickly, how can we be sure, secondly, as His sheep that will never perish? Look at verse 28 with me. First of all, it's three things I want to mention. Number one, the nature of Christ's gift. Christ Himself says, I give eternal life to them. And if eternal life can cease at some point in your life, then it's not eternal. And if God implants eternal life in your soul, then by definition, it lasts forever. And you'll notice it's not a gift. Or notice it is a gift, excuse me. And I remember the words of Romans 11.29, the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. The nature of Christ's gift, it is eternal. And notice the nature of Christ's promise that they will never perish. I give them eternal life. God is saying they will never perish. And this is not the promise of a mere man, ladies and gentlemen. This is Jesus Christ. They will never perish. You know, we're often used to lying in our country and in our circles. We're so used to it that I think often we ask, do you really mean that? You know, when somebody says something, they're going to do something. Do you really mean that? You don't have to say that when the Lord Jesus says something. They will never perish. Because Christ is the faithful and true witness who cannot lie. So it's the nature of His gift, the nature of His promise. But notice the final thing in verse 28c through verse 30. It is the nature of Christ's hold on your life. It is a unified effort by the Godhead to hold us. Jesus says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who gave them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. I and the Father are one. I think Jesus is demonstrating something of what we see in Hebrews 6, wherein the author speaks of our hope as an anchor of the soul. And the fact that God Almighty, since He could swear by no one greater, swore by Himself. God doesn't have to swear. But it was a doubled-up effect. And Hebrews 6 says, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of His promise the unchangeableness of His purpose interposed with an oath. And the nature of united commitment within the Godhead to secure us in the hands of the Son of God and God the Father Almighty. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's making it as abundantly clear as he can that no one will snatch you out of my hands because my Father has you in his hands and he's the one who originally gave you into my hands. 
no one can snatch you out of my hand. You know, the hands that created you can never be doubted. He's the same. And the hands that were wounded for you on the cross of Calvary, you can never doubt them for their love. 1 Timothy 1.16, Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his unlimited or perfect patience as an example of those who believe. Maybe I'm speaking to someone this morning, and as I've often heard, I have these sins in my life or this repetitive sin, and I strive against it, and I need help, I need victory, and I doubt my salvation. And the Apostle Paul says, look at me. God's patience are unlimited. And as long as I continue to hunger after Him and walk toward Him, it's evidence that His Spirit is operating in my life. Of course, people fall away, just like the sower in the seed. But if you belong to Jesus, no matter how far you may wonder, no matter how much of a bruised reed you might be or a dimly burning wick, He will not extinguish you. He will lovingly and graciously draw you back to Himself because His honor depends on you. Are you assured of your salvation today? Have you embraced the Lord Jesus Christ with saving faith? Are you resting and receiving Him and walking with Him daily? If you are, you've got a great assurance that you will indeed persevere to the end. Not because of your strength, but because of His in your life. Let's pray together. Gracious Lord, we thank You that You indeed persevere with Your people. And I pray this morning, Lord, if there's some here that are wondering, am I a Christian? Has the Lord let me go? Has He withdrawn His Spirit from me? That, Lord, You would lovingly and graciously encourage them and draw them to Yourself Give them assurance that they belong to you and that you would continue to show your unlimited patience in our lives, that we might more and more be drawn to you to love you with every part of our being. Lord, save those who are lost and disciple the saved, and we'll give you all the glory and honor for what you will do in our hearts. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name.